Colossians chapter 2. It is a difficult thing to drop into a completely new letter for one Sunday and then to leave it and go back to John. Um, And so I I hope that you uh, lend at least uh, a certain amount of lack of clarity with regards to how Colossians works altogether. I think you know as we work through Philippians, it took weeks and weeks to gather together its introduction and everything else. And I'm going to buzz through that really fast so that we can get to something here that I think the church today needs to hear. Um, The reality of the book of Colossians is that it is absolutely centrally focused not on simply the necessity of Jesus Christ, but on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That is an enormous difference. An enormous difference that makes the difference between being a church of Christ or not. A difference between being a Christian or not. And no, that is not overstated. Christ, in our salvation, has not merely helped us with our sin problem. It is not that we were 40% righteous and needed 60% more. It is that even our righteousnesses were not righteous. We needed all of Christ. Both his atoning work and his sanctifying work and his righteousness. It is commonly expressed in shorthand when talking about the gospel that what keeps us out of heaven is that we have a debt of sin. And that's usually where the discussion stops. We need our debt paid off. But that's not the whole message, is it? In order for someone to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he needs not just to be without sin. He needs to not just have sin paid off. He also needs to be righteous. He needs to have obedience to the law of God in his account. Sin is not the only thing keeping us out of heaven. We need to be holy. This is why we do not just speak of the necessity of Christ. To speak of the necessity of Christ is to say that our sins were paid off. Now it's up to me to to keep on that straight and narrow, and then I will present myself faultless after my sins have been taken care of. The problem with this is, one, it is not the way the Scriptures put forward the gospel, and two, you're not capable of doing that. Neither am I. Neither has there been any other person in all of history outside of Christ who can do that. The reality is, how it comes to us is that we are not just forgiven, we are, the biblical word is, justified. And so we're we're laying some of this groundwork before we get into this text, because it's so important. Justified is not just wiping away sins, it's declaring righteous, making sinners into saints, holy people. You say, well, what about sin after I'm a Christian? Yes, this is why we confess and repent and come back to the Lord. Christians live lives of repentance. 
But as far as our standing before the throne of God, it is not just without sin. It is as if I did all things well. And so I'll ask a question the same way I've asked it before. If you are a saint, comes from the same word as holy, then who can hold any condemnation against you? If someone comes up to you and says, for this sin in your life, you can't stand before the throne of God. Look how bad that sin is. And let me reiterate the same as Martin Luther would say. I agree that because of the sin, I deserve sin. I deserve death and hell. But I know one who stands in my place and has made satisfaction for me. And he has promised that where he is, I too will one day be. We are made righteous in Christ. We are made holy in Christ. It is he who is able to present us faultless, not us. And it is not making that distinction that has made many Christian churches go off the rails. Many Christians live in a state of perpetual unworthiness because all they can see is their sin and they do not see the promised righteousness of Christ. And if you fit that description today, then I encourage you to listen and listen well. As one who lived in that state for a long time, I want to help set you free from that. Not because we have license to sin, for we do not, but because we have Christ, and that is far better than anything you can do. Colossians chapter 2 sits in the center of a book that is written to a church that is dealing with the disapproval of pagan religion in their culture. That should sound familiar. We, too, live in a culture that is devoted to paganism. Whether you realize it or not, every time you open the newspaper or go on Twitter or Facebook, you will see it everywhere. Our culture now has a base understanding of paganism, not of any Judeo-Christian ethic. Not that having a Judeo-Christian ethic makes you a Christian country either. The reality is, though, there are specific struggles that the church goes through when it lives in a pagan culture, something that the American church has not known for a long while. And so some of these things you will find will sound a little bit familiar. Some of them have overlaps. And all of them point the people who belong to Christ to Christ and not to the culture and not to a hope of making the culture better, not to any other hope but Christ alone. And so I want to encourage you with this today because Colossians 2 is one of the what I will call sledgehammers of Scripture when it comes to false teaching. Uh, And I would ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read these 23 verses. And hear the heart of the Apostle Paul towards this church. He begins, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ." in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. 
For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's an amazing statement. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, but with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Watch this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or false humility and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as though you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and even severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Let's pray. Our Father, we sit before a very large section of Scripture. Sometimes that's necessary, and we are grateful for this. It is complicated, it is deep, but Father, it is so incredibly helpful. We pray, Father, that your Spirit who inspired these words illumine our hearts and minds this day, that we would both love and understand your Word. We pray, Father, for one another that would seek to foster a love of your word, a devotion to Christ above all things. We pray, Father, for this fervently for one another. We pray, Father, furthermore for wisdom. There are many things in this world and in our culture that vie under the, under the auspices of wisdom, but it is falsely so called. We pray for the wisdom of Christ in our midst, and we know that you give that to those who ask fervently and in faith. We pray, Father, for it in your Son's name. Amen. You can be seated. That's a lot of topics, isn't it? Believe it or not, we're not going to walk through every single piece of it, but what we are going to do is get the overarching concept. What's happening in this passage 
has everything to do with the issues of the church today. Everything. As you look out into the church, we can't even define terms anymore, such as evangelical, orthodox, classical, or any such thing. We are completely bombarded on all sides, even with people calling themselves Christians, that attempt to redefine all of these things so that they may free themselves from the confines of Scripture. The idea that we can come and redefine everything, the idea that we can come and undo many things to set Christians free to do whatever they want is one of the most pertinent false teachings in the church today. The gospel of Christ does not free us to sin as we ought. The gospel of Christ does not free us to sin as we would want. The gospel of Christ brings us a new heart. For someone who has truly found salvation in Christ, it is not some fire insurance. It is not just some answer when we sin, though it is that. It comes in and changes our lives in specific ways. And I want to explain to you why that is. Because every false religion in the world gets this wrong, including all of those false religions that call themselves Christianity. There are two aspects to life. There's the physical interactions, the actions, and the things that are done. And then there is the beliefs, the philosophy, the wisdom. In philosophy, it's called the metaphysical. In Christian circles, it's doctrine. It's theology, it's beliefs, it's accomplishments, it's when, when I say justification is this, it's these concepts, doctrine. On the other side, there's things that are done in the body. Every false religion gets this wrong. It will focus on one instead of the other, or the other instead of the one. It will overemphasize everything about doctrine and right belief, but it will pay no attention to the actions of the body. And so it'll come up to a Christian and it'll insist, here's exactly what you must believe, here's exactly what you must hold to, and the actions of the body are meaningless. This is defined in the book of Jude as those who would teach the grace of God as lewdness. In other words, you're able to sin as we will because that has nothing to do with it. As long as you just hold to these things right, you'll be fine. Many false religions are based on this. Let's go to the other extreme. It's all about the things done in the body. Here's the list of things you do, the things you don't do. If you just follow these rules, you will be fine. You can believe kind of whatever you want, but it's all about impressing God. Many false religions fall into this category. We will reach nirvana. We will follow the law of God. We will be obedient. We will make ourselves holy. We will make ourselves righteous. Christianity is neither of those on their own. Christianity is both. And almost every problem in the church is spent by focusing on one over the other. And the book of Colossians will come in and it'll grab both of them and jam them together and say, you can't escape this reality. The unification of the spiritual and the physical in the person of Christ is undividable and not able to be cast away. Christ himself is not just human, and he is not just God. He is both. 
The scriptures, my friends, are not just human authors, nor are they just written by God. They are both. See the pattern? The Christian life after the coming of the Holy Spirit is not just a human endeavor, nor is it just God. It is both. And both with an intended culmination. These realities define our lives, the scriptures, our relationship to Christ, even our hopes. Notice this, prosperity gospel. Where does it spend all of its focus? On the here and now. In the stuff of this life and of this earth. The hopes that we can establish here. Now, will God keep our needs in mind just like he does for the sparrows? Absolutely. But is that the whole of the promises of the gospel? No. Believe it or not, faithful Christians have starved to death and have been burned to death throughout history. So that we cannot have. On the other side, God will give you nothing. He's just made promises about the future and has no effect on today. This is what we would call deism. Many churches fall into this. And what they'll do is they'll say, God has given us these promises for the extreme future, but your life is yours. Everything that you do is only about you. And so we create this bizarre world of paganism inside the church where we say it's just about the rules that we do and God is not thoroughly, dis- uh, not thoroughly invested or interested and everything is really up to you. And by the way, God wants you to feel good too. And we, we cast aside the biblical teachings of what the Christian life and the graces of Christ truly is, and we establish ourselves in this weird concoction of paganism and Christian theology and attempt to limp our way forward while we at all points feel unworthy to even be in the presence of God. Christian, you are now in Christ worthy to be in the presence of the Almighty. Do you know what Christ has done for you? Do you know how far salvation has reached into this world and pulled us up from the miry clay and has set our feet on a rock that cannot be moved and cannot be taken from us? Those who would establish some other hope or slipperiness to that rock that we somehow have to put ourselves in there to make sure we stay saved, do not understand the value of holiness given to God's people. God has expressed to us, not only do you have to be holy because our Father in heaven is holy, he says in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How many of us have done this? Not one. Not one outside of God working through man, God as man in the person of Christ. He has done it. And rightly is he named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will accomplish this. They need their sins atoned for. They need their righteousness gifted to them because they can't do it. And here in Colossians 2, Paul is talking to a church that is being lambasted 
by a belief system that was intermixed with paganism and Judaism and throwing to the church that you are all unworthy. And what Paul is telling this church is, they are unworthy, here is why you are worthy. They are telling you that they have a wisdom that you don't know about. Their devotion to philosophy, their devotion to wisdom, and yet I will tell you that in Christ is all the wisdom and knowledge of this world. They will tell you that through your fealty to their spiritual beliefs, you may be set free from any condemnation that they have. And I'm here to tell you that you are already set free from any condemnation because there is one who justifies and one who makes righteous and who is to condemn. Christian, if you are in Christ, first of all, Christian, you are in Christ. Then hear the condemnations of this world as validation. Do not seek friendship with this world. It will be fleeting at best. Seek Christ above all things. Look at the way he talks to them. He says, verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, another town nearby, and for all who have not seen me face to face. His relationship with some of these churches has only been through proxy and through letters. He's never actually set foot in them. He wants their hearts to be encouraged, verse 2, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And you're going to see this theme over and over and over again this morning. He says, in whom, meaning Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't look for more. Christian, this even says to us, when we are looking out at the natural world and understanding the glories of the world that God has made, see that from the perspective of service to Christ, who through him all things were made. If you like a certain aspect of science, or you like a certain aspect of poetry, or you like a certain aspect of how language works, your thanks goes to the one who made all of these things. It is a remarkable thing. One of my favorite things to do, and this is kind of a bizarre thing, but it's how my bizarre mind works. If I'm walking through the woods, I like to veer off the path a bit and go find a leaf somewhere that nobody else has seen and give thanks to God for that leaf. Nobody else will ever see it. Nobody else will ever benefit from it knowingly. Nobody else will ever thank God for that leaf. It's a bizarre thing to me, but it speaks to me about this reality that God not only has planned the smallest moment, but at every single point, it is a gift. Every single point. And so whatever we do and wherever we go, let glory be given to God. This is one of the things that I will say for any of you who are planning on going to seminary or Bible school someday. Um, God be with you if you do that. They're kind of difficult places these days. But you will run into false teachings all the time in almost every class. And there's been a litmus test I've used over the years. And Christian, going forward, you're going to need this. Whenever you come across something you haven't heard before, ask yourself one question. Where does the glory go? 
What is the result of this teaching? What is the result of this? If it goes to man, discard it. That is not the way of Christ. If the glory goes to God, consider it further. That is the basis of almost every single Christian doctrine. God is to be glorified. I have literally sat in a class that said, if you say that salvation is about the glory of God, that is akin to Islam. That is a false gospel. Verbatim quote from a seminary class I was in. These are pastors that are being trained. The things that the church is going to have to deal with are going to be very similar to the stuff that Colossae was dealing with. Paganism under the auspices of serving the one true God. Verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. First of all, let's stop for a second and realize what is going to come at us will be plausible arguments. What was coming at them has the appearance of wisdom. Maybe they have something to teach us that we don't know about. True, maybe so. Ask where the glory goes. It's one of the greatest litmus tests of all theology. There are some other arguments that are not plausible, but all these arguments will come towards the church and establish either agree with these or do these things or you are not in service to the true God and the true religion. I do not have to go into detail about our culture, but we are going through an overhaul of that right now. Agree with this series of realities, otherwise you shall be outcast. I am just fine with being outcast from things that do not glorify Christ. And what Paul reminds them of, it says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and your firmness in the faith of Christ. See those two sides pulled together. Good order and firmness in faith. And this is what he wants for the church. And he expresses to them how to get that, how to maintain that. Two aspects, two massive aspects in this. One of beliefs, one of actions. First, he talks about the beliefs, verses 6 through 15. Let's look at these. Therefore, and now he talks about Christ, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is the same message he gave to the church in Galatia. It says the same thing. Are you so stupid? And yes, he does use that terminology. Are you so stupid as to think that that which began by the Spirit continues by works? No. What began by the Spirit continues by the Spirit. You could not save yourself, and you can also not live the Christian life on your own. This is not you. Again, where does the glory go? Just as you received Christ, walk in him. Full faith, full dependence, full assurance. He is sufficient for my salvation and he is sufficient for my Tuesdays and my Thursdays and my everyday. You see this? Sufficient in all manner. Just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up, not in your habits, not in your rules, not even in your local assembly, rooted and built up in him. Here he speaks to a whole congregation. And be established in the faith just as you were taught and abounding in thanksgiving. One thing I can assure you of, if you are walking as a Christian feeling unworthy, 
of even walking with the Lord or even unworthy of prayer, that will affect your thankfulness almost immediately. And it will show up that what things occur in your life are somehow owed to you or the natural consequence. And one of the sure signs of health in the life of a believer is the presence of thankfulness at all points. I have prayed many times that God give me the strength to be thankful for my sufferings while I'm in them. That is a very, very hard thing. But it expresses a certain faith in God that these things have not just merely come across our path. We are brought to them intentionally and we'll be brought through them intentionally. And God has not abandoned us to the wiles of this world. Verse 8, he says, See to it then that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions. In other words, the spiritual matters of life. Do not be taken captive to these ideas that what we have is special knowledge. We've arisen to this place where we don't really need just Christ and we really don't need his word. We need this more wisdom. We need this more knowledge. We need all of this other stuff in order to set us free in order to bring us meaning and purpose and value. These things he defines are according to human tradition. Remember, there is a spiritual and a physical aspect to everything in the Christian life. And if it is just according to human tradition, then it is not taking into account the fact that we needed these things not from our own perspective. We actually needed revelation from God to tell us about these things. Let me ask you a question. How much would you know about Christ if it wasn't for his scriptures? How much would you know about the effect of his atoning sacrifice or of his resurrection? How much would we know? Because there is a very common habit these days, in, especially in conservative circles in the church, to say we don't really need to base ourselves on the scriptures. We just need to base our claims onto the historic reliability of the resurrection of Jesus and then build everything out of that. It's a way to separate the church from the scriptures, and it's happening all over the place. Where's the danger in that, do you think? The danger, of course, is in hearing from God anything about the resurrection. So what if a Palestinian man back in 20 centuries ago, rose from the dead. There's been plenty of people risen from the dead. Plenty of people. I can think of a dozen off the top of my head. Numerous at the crucifixion of Christ, according to Matthew. Dozens and dozens. Why does his resurrection matter? And unless God has given us his revelation, we can never know. And so it extends to us... Thank you. It extends to us... Not only is there importance in the reality of Christ, we also see importance in the reality of a scripture. Not only is Christ necessary for salvation, he is sufficient. And not only are the scriptures necessary, they too are sufficient. When God has expressed to us these things, we do not need to run to a false religion to find out realities of God's world. 
And yet this will come into the church and say, if you do not agree with us about this reality or that reality, be it gender, be it racial relations, be it anything else, then we somehow cannot serve God. The reality is that the church should be enamored with Christ and nothing else. The church should be enamored with ultimate justice, not local justice only. Both must be aspects of the church's existence. Why does Christ have this value? Look at verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Look at this. God and body. Both brought together to say, you cannot say that you are serving some esoterical wisdom or identity or reality that denies the body. You cannot go the other extreme either and just say it's all about the body and the pursuit of economic things, the pursuit of uh, all of these things that define who I am, where I was born, and everything else, and then deny God's existence to this or deny any spiritual aspect to it. Both are to be held in highest esteem and say because God has come full deity dwelling in bodily form, we have the reality in Christ that we cannot define our lives by anything other than Christ. So what does he say to them? The the results of this come, verse 10, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised. Again, bodily languages, but then switches it over to the spiritual with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, that's both sides, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. Notice who is the actor in all of this. Where does the glory go? Who is gaining credit for our lives, for our salvation, for everything? It is God, God, God. Why? Because man couldn't do it. So then how can he save us? He had to come as one of us. And so what we find in Christ is not just an apparition of God walking around, appearing as a man. No, we find him born as a helpless baby and growing up in wisdom and knowledge and coming into his own and growing up and developing, learning breaks almost every concept that we have about how the incarnation works. And then comes to his ministry and opens up the reality, what is it like when God is walking among his people? What is it like when he does this? While it brings temporal healings to bodies, it speaks of the spiritual realities of the healings that all of us need. While his kingdom, we pray, comes on this earth it is already in heaven and we look for them to be united as one look at the center of the lord's prayer your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven we want them both to be drawn together as one we see god living as one of us not appearing as one of us actually being one of us that he may bring many sons to glory and the expression is we no longer live simply according to the flesh 
and according to the timeline in which we live, we now connect with an eternal God through his sacrifice and through his promise. We are no longer our own. That gives us a claim to life that most people have no idea about. If God has made you alive, who is anyone to tell you that you are dead? If God has made you holy, who is anyone to come up and call you unworthy? If God has pronounced justification, who can condemn? If you are alive in the Spirit, who can give you condemnation that you are dead in sins? This is the role of Satan. The very name itself means one who accuses. He comes to the brethren. He comes to Christians and accuses them. What does Paul say? God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14. Yet another thing I saw denied in seminary, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, is described in direct detail here. How did he do this? Verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities. This is spiritual world stuff. This is not physical world stuff. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, the principalities, powers of darkness, these things, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As he says, this pagan religion that's coming in and condemning the Christians that are in Colossae, he says, the demons that they serve have already been defeated. They think that they have worship. They think they have true doctrine. What they truly have is worship of angels and doctrines of demons. He's about to describe this. What they truly are serving are those who are already defeated. And they're coming to children of the king and saying, no, we're in charge. We have something better. Look at the things that we can do. Look at the effects that we can do. And yes, my friends, there was still magic in the world. I know we live in the modern world, so we don't like to think about this. It is undeniable that the spiritual forces of darkness in the first century were at work in a way they are not at work today. Physically. Imagine how many Christians would be brought away by signs and wonders of demons today. All we have is a book and promises that God has apparently forgotten about. They have real power. Look what they can do. Look at the effects of things that they can do. Look at this. What Paul is saying is they are serving things that are already defeated. And no, we should not be brought in by signs and wonders. Even Christ said this, This generation always desires such things. I refuse to give them. So 
So instead of healing them, to show them these things, he talks to them. And he says, as far as for philosophy and empty deceit and all of these things called wisdom, let's go to our lives now. Let's look in the body and see the very easy ways that people can pass judgment on you in questions of the bodily habits. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of, watch this list, food and drink, consumables, or with regard to festival, new moon, or Sabbath, calendar things. Why? Why not? Thank you. They're bodily habits that appear spiritual, but they don't actually cause spiritual life, do they? The whole purpose of the Jewish law, and this is why the religion that was being brought against them was an amalgam of pagan and Jewish philosophy, the whole point of dietary regulations was not to make Jewish people healthy or any such things. None of that. Don't go out and try to make, you know, recipes that you see in the Law and the Prophets. It's not meant to be some special health code that you didn't know about. And if you want to make it properly, you have to cook things like Ezekiel bread over poop anyway, so I don't see anyone doing that. In questions of food and drink, in questions of calendars, in questions of of new moons and Sabbaths and festivals. This, and he actually takes it annual things, monthly things, weekly things. This is not the freedom of the Christian. To come down on somebody and say, you must take our traditions, these human precepts, and define your spiritual life and existence by them. He says there's a massive problem here in that the things of the body were only the foreshadowing of the full substance that came, which is Christ. Look at the very next verse. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He is both. And so Christian, do not in your newfound desire say, forget it, I can just go and be drunk all I want. No, no side of this is to call to extremes anywhere in this. We do not deny the body for the sake of the spiritual. We hold both because Christ is both. And he is our king. And so what do we understand? We understand that while food and drink regulations, while all of these other things were good for a time and they taught us about Christ, they are not the essences of the kingdom of heaven. They just aren't. They're habits inside this world. They must be tempered by the wisdom of Christ. And you will see this spelled out directly in Romans 14. He brings up both examples, specifically, because there's so many divisions that happen in churches over material things, because we spend so much of our time focused on material things and spiritual things, but rarely do we pull them together as they ought to be. We don't say we avoid drunkenness or we avoid gluttony because it's bad or unhealthy. We'll say we do it in service to God or rules or something like this. The reality is Christ has shown us a better life. 
He has given us new desires and new hearts, and therefore we eschew those things that remind us of who we once were. And we do that in service to one another, not in obligation, but in service to one another. To put it in practical terms, if I have somebody over to my house, let's say in a hypothetical sense, and they have had an issue with gluttony in the past, guess what? I'm going to be aware of that because I love this person. And I'm going to help them in any way I can, not by overeating or overserving. I'm going to keep that in mind. Why? Not because I'm required to, but because I love this person. That is the nature of Christ's service to us, isn't it? Imagine this, God walking as one of us in the first century Jews all around him with all sorts of wrong ideas. Imagine just just the 12 disciples. He's walking with them. How many wrong things do you think they did in his presence? How many sins? How many wrong ideas? He could have fixed all of it, and he didn't. He is caring with us. He is patient with us. And so we are with one another. Don't pay attention to the shadows when you have the substance, the one casting the shadow. Imagine this. Imagine saying, I understand everything about everything that happens inside this building because I saw the shape of the shadow on the lawn next door. That's as ludicrous as saying following Christ is all about rules and regulations. No, it's not. The substance is Christ. These other things are the shadows of Christ. It doesn't make them wrong. It means you cannot bring condemnation on somebody because of this. It doesn't work like that. And so he says again, verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Watch this. Look at the effect of things that were going on in their presence. Insisting on asceticism, a a word we don't use very often. It means false humility. Severity to the body. I'm going to fast so that I can please God. Or I am going to beat myself into submission so that I can please God. I will be falsely humble in order to make my standing before God better. Here's the thing. If you understand Christ, you know that you cannot improve your standing before God, and so you will not pursue this nonsense. And what he's saying is, this is not real humility. This is false humility. And yes, there have been many people throughout church history that have done this, beat themselves, flogged themselves, starved themselves, trying to make themselves in the better graces of God without fully understanding that we are in the grace of God as far as ever we will be. Not because of what we've done, but because of him who called us. He says, what is the effect of all of this? They worship angels. They go on in detail about visions. Many people at this time in Colossae and around it were fasting with the intention of it instigating visions. Because it does do that sometimes. And they go on about their visions, their dreams, the things that bring them value. And notice this. These are questions of authority. Is Scripture sufficient? Is Christ sufficient? Is his wisdom and knowledge sufficient? Or do we look for value in other things to replace him? 
And this shows a hunger for something other than Christ and other than his revealed word. They are puffed up without reason, because that's what knowledge without reason does, by his sensuous mind. Why does it happen like this? Verse 19, a warning to the church as well. It is because they are not holding fast to the head. Not holding fast to Christ. And that is why I call this sermon this. The church must, with no apology and no vacation from it, hold fast to Christ. That sounds spiritual, but I encourage you, my friends, it is both spiritual and it is in the world. If you have a bifurcation in your life between church and the rest of your life, there is something deathly, deathly wrong with your view of Christ. If you can in one day sing praises to God on high and the next day think nothing of him and it affects nothing in your life, you've got a massive problem. And when I say massive, I mean you have no right to assurance of salvation at all. Do you know why? Because Christ is not Lord only on Sunday mornings. He is not Lord only on all-day Sundays and sometimes during the week when you're in the presence of other Christians. He is Lord today, yesterday, forevermore, and at every moment in the lives of his people. It will affect your spiritual life. It will affect your physical life. And if it is not doing those things, something is wrong, severely wrong. That does not mean as a Christian you do not sin and you do not have acts of darkness. You do. We all do. It is why we come together and confess our sins and live lives of repentance together and as individuals throughout the week. We are here because we need one another, not because we're supposed to be here. church must hold fast to Christ because it is from him that the whole body is nourished. It is from him that the whole body is held together through its joints, through its ligaments, and it is through him that the church grows. And here instead, we see churches focused on a growth that is focused only on the things of this world and the counts of heads and the amount of people attending. There is a growth that comes from God in every one of our lives that we cannot allow to wane. Both of these intentions must be held together. Our lives in ongoing sanctification must be affected by Christ. Our beliefs, our doctrine, our theology must be held in submission to Christ. Our growth as Christians and the expansion of God's word and his gospel into this area and beyond must be our goal and our preoccupation so that the glory would go to him and not just to us. He reasons this to them in verse 20 here at the close. 
He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, these are these false demons, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And here he does them with increasing insanity. Do not handle, meaning do not mess with, do not taste. You know what? Don't touch. Stay away from things. Follow these regulations. Do this stuff, and that will lead you to serve God well. No, no, no. That's just the bodily stuff. It's not going to serve God well. It doesn't work like that. That's as ludicrous as saying, I serve God, but I sin all I want. You can't just do one without the other. You cannot do one without the other. It doesn't work like this. This is why false religions are false. They try to serve God here, or they try to serve God here, but they cannot have this idea of the incarnate Christ who brings heaven and earth together and says, your will be done in heaven as it already is in heaven here on earth. And Christian, this is why we have the Holy Spirit of God in the midst of us all. Because we are to be carrying out eternal works of God in the body. How are we to do such things? It is not through just making up your mind to do it. This is why we pray for wisdom. This is why we pray for obedience. Pray for faithfulness. Because friends, you can't just manufacture it through good habits. You cannot be obedient enough to make you faithful. This is why works don't save us. Works without faith is as dead as faith without works. You must have both. And I'm not saying works perfects us. No, they are a joint thing. I don't know why I'm quoting Martin Luther again today. I didn't plan to do either of those. But he said the same thing. We are indeed saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. It comes with works. Why? Because it naturally affects the body and the habits that we have. And if it doesn't, my friends, go back to what you think faith actually is. It is not just agreeing with God about things. It is devoting, it is faithfulness, it is committedness, it is reliance and dependence at the core of our being on Christ alone. Not just as necessary to save us and to raise us, but sufficient. It says, all of these other things, verse 22, refer to things that perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. It has an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, there's that word again, severity to the body and all of these. But look at the effect. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Christ himself warns us about those who would teach as doctrines the commandments of men, and we would do well to pay attention to his warnings. It better come from Scripture. It better come from Christ. It better glorify God on high. And it better not glorify the here and now or our intentions or our plans. It is very often in the church said that God was really blessing us when we were doing X, Y, or Z. We must be very careful with our words. Good results in the physical world do not guarantee that you are faithful. Read the story of Jeroboam II if you want God's thoughts on this. Everything was going great in Israel. There, 
their treasury was expanding, their borders were expanding, and God comes up and says, do you think this is because of me? You think it's because of your faithfulness that this is happening? I'll rip it all away. I'll tear it all away. Why? You weren't faithful while everything was going well. My friends, this is the protection in our lives. When everything goes haywire, it also doesn't mean that you are suffering because you were sinful. Sufferings come to Christians. Good times and bad both come into our lives. We cannot define the spiritual approval of God on the basis of physical things. It's not how it works. You are no longer under condemnation. You are experiencing good things in life as a grace and bad things as a grace. All of life is a grace. Everything that we experience. And God walks with us through it. And God will not fail to be promising and fulfilling his promises all through it. All of this to bring us to the reality Don't leave Christ aside and try to fix the world around you. You will fail. Serve Christ. Serve your king like your life depends on him, because it does. Serve your king as if he is responsible for every breath you breathe and every step you take, because he is. Glorify him at all points, both physical and spiritual, because he made them both every moment and every day. Challenge yourselves, my friends, to be thankful even in times of great suffering, for it is there that you will know Christ more than times of ease, I promise. Let's pray. Our Father, we... We are grateful. Your word challenges at very, very deep points. It also sets free. Lord, may we delight ourselves in the promises that you have made to your people. That you will never leave us or forsake us that when fiery trials come towards us, we are not falling into something that surprised you or should be even surprising to us. We promise that such things will come. May we serve Christ in the midst of it all. May we seek his glory, even at the expense of our own. May we seek your will on earth as it already is in heaven. May you show us the need to clean our own room before somebody else's. We pray in your son's name. Amen.